In Discussion with David Gibbons is sponsored in part by Bowman Global Change. Specializing in helping companies reduce their carbon emissions, Bowman Global Change applies real science to real business practices to produce results. From designing green programs to one-on-one training to helping set up green action teams in your business, Bowman Global Change translates complex science in practical ways that everyone can understand and use. For more information or to discover how Bowman Global Change can help your organization, visit bowmanglobalchange.com. discussion today, I'm joined by C.L. Mitchell and John Call, and special guest Kevin Cox in the continuing series on Genesis. Genesis chapter 13, Abram and Lot. Welcome today to In Discussion and our series on Genesis, and I have with me today my honoured guests John Call and C.L. Mitchell, and I'm very pleased today to be joined by Kevin Cox. John, C.L., Kevin, welcome to you today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be here. I believe that we have reached Genesis chapter 13, and I wondered if we could begin today, uh, C.L., if you would be most kind to give us a brief review of chapter 12 before we start chapter 13 for our listeners. Absolutely, David. Chapter 12 is going to be the watershed, as it were, for the book of Genesis overall. We have just come through um, the historical aspects of the book that really speak to prehistory, as it were. And now we are going to thin out within the soteriological or salvific narrative, whereas God worked on a very general scale through Adam and through Abel and through Seth and Noah and Enoch before him, um, uh, what we're going to see now is God moving us toward a specific man in which these promises, these soteriological or again salvific or redemptive promises anticipated in Genesis chapter number three will begin to be realized over a period of centuries, literally millennia, anticipating the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so what we're going to look at is a man. He's going to begin as Avram. He's going to begin in Mesopotamia. Uh, He's going to begin in uh, cultic and occultic practices historically. He's going to be moved, as it were, by faith and by the word of God alone to a distinct area where he is by means of obedience and faith alone to adhere and acquiesce to the words of God, thereby obtaining the promises of God in order to be part of that big historical picture uh, that is going to eventually and inevitably bring salvation not only to the Jewish nation, but to the entire world. And so chapter 12 seeks really to begin the narrative of the coming of the Son of God as seen through the Jewish nation in 
particularity or with specificity through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and his sons. C.L. Mitchell, thank you so much for that review. I'd like to move on to you, John Kaur, if you could start with an overview of our chapter today. And John, we have in this chapter 18 verses. Perhaps we could, over the hour duration, split that three ways. So perhaps we could look at verses 1 to 6 or thereabouts uh, with your overview to begin. Sure. Yeah, in chapter 13, and as CL was just mentioning that, uh, you know, Abram is, is a man. He's going to be the, the father of, of, of a multitude of nations eventually. He is chosen by God. And what we will see is the growth of this man in faith. We're going to see uh, that, as we have saw before in chapter 12, that though he does believe, he also has times where he uh, where he stumbles, and chapter thirteen is is I think is a is in one sense uh, uh, evidence of of Abram's faith in his trusting God to to deliver to him or to to provide for him that which he needs. And what happens in chapter thirteen essentially is you see uh, Abram and his and his nephew Lot, who have both become uh, rich from their time in Egypt. Uh, at the end of chapter 12, and you see how they both re- respond and react to those riches and to uh, the promises of God versus the promises of the world. Abram is going to give us great evidence of a man who is going to um, defer to Lot and who's going to entrust uh, his future with, with God. And uh, though the two will end up splitting in a sense where they uh, they have to split apart, uh, Abram is the bigger man in the, in the story. Uh, Lot is going to be the one who chooses uh, uh, that which looks good and that which will uh, appeal to his uh, his his fleshly desires and and his and his physical needs. But God's going to uh, to speak with Abram and sort of uh, reward him for his his trust in God. And so you have um, two men who are both very similar outwardly, both enriched with a lot of a lot of riches and livestock, but. But both men have two different ways of looking how to handle that and how to uh, in, uh, incorporate that into into whether to trust God or not. And so that is sort of the overview. And at the end, Lot is going to be sort of taken out of the way because Lot is not going to be the promised son that was given to, uh, that was promised to Abram. Uh, the story, the writers sort of taken Lot sort of out of the picture for a time to reveal more things to Abram that is going to be uh, somebody else that's going to come through Abraham's line. And it's not going to be a lot. But Abram is a picture of the man of faith that uh, that believers look to. Thank you, John. Uh, CEO, can I ask you, uh, before we really digest this first third of the chapter, and following from John's overview, what are the precise deficiencies that insulate or provide such a contrast between Lot and Abram in this this, this initial part of the chapter for our listeners to understand? I think there are a great deal of complexities betwixt Abram and Lot that really create interest for us in the plot and also an enigma for us in Abraham's character or disposition. Um, to begin that answer, let me just discuss it from this perspective. 
that what we have really is an interesting approach hermeneutically. We have a textual hermeneutic in which we are discussing the contrast uh, betwixt the character of Abram and the character of Lot. But then larger than that, we have an overall contextual hermeneutic that is really trying to make a comparison and a contrast uh, betwixt the people of God within the framework of the nation of Israel. Because you must remember that although we are looking at this historically within the life of Avram, what we are also doing is we're looking at this at about 1445 BCE or thereabout after. And so it really is something that Moses is writing to the children of Israel in order to articulate, if you will, certain similarities and characteristics and deficiencies that they should either familiarize themselves with or quickly cease and desist from. But then you have a larger canonical hermeneutic. That is, it takes in view the entire scope of Scripture. And it really argues that there are those mature believers who are really trying to adhere to God's Word, while there are those uh, uh, fleshly believers. They are not unbelievers, as it were, 1 Corinthians 3. They are individuals who are very similar to unbelievers, but are driven by the things of this world in connection with the fallen nature. And uh, they are people that are driven by the eyesight rather than being people that are driven by the ear. What we're going to look at is we're going to look at one believer who is walking through the process of maturation as he's matriculating in his walk of faith. What we're going to look at is another believer in all probability, who is driven more by the eyes, and both are going to deal with the consequences. Abram is going to be forced to deal with the consequences of his refusal to adhere obediently 100% to God um, in chapter number 12, because what he's told to do in chapter number 12 is contradistinctive to what we see him doing when he brings Lot. And so you see this partial obedience, and yet providentially God's going to bring it around so that he has to deal with it. But with Lot, what we're going to see is not so much of an obedience as we see this uh, acquiescence, this surrender, if you will, to a system that's going to cost him in multitudinous ways down the road. Kevin, um, why don't we uh, get a response from you on, on that question that I had posed? Well, David, as I as I look across chapter 12 and 13, um, I'm drawn, as these guys have discussed, the big picture of what's taking place in God's plan for the people of Israel. But one of the things I see socially going on between Abram and Lot is a, maybe what I would call without looking further into it is a, a, a natural social drama ensuing in the midst of um, God's ultimate plan that will be no matter what else happens between Lot and Abram and, and the future of decisions that are made and, things that they find themselves in. And I think it probably will lead us to more of a practical and relevant perspective on what's taking place from Abram learning to be obedient to what God has called him to. You know, there's such a connection between chapter 12 and 13, God promising Abram, I will bless you, I will make you great. Uh, and that is dependent upon God. So Abraham goes forth in verse 4 of chapter 12, and then he goes up uh, from Egypt in chapter 13 and finds himself in this predicament with Lot because the natural way of the wealth puts them in a situation where their flesh is really faced with making a decision in the midst of the land not providing for both 
uh, of these gentlemen and all that's taking place with their families and their wealth. And so, but but what's interesting to me is that God's plan continues even though it's taking you know this dilemma is taking place between Abram and Lot, and and what you find is that Abram is really on the beginning road of learning how to trust that God's plan will will persist and and the outcome of what God wants for the people of Israel in terms of a soteriological viewpoint you know moving into the new testament will stand and and what i find very practical practical for say the modern day church is when you look at abram stepping back and saying well you choose this way or that way and i'll go the opposite direction even still by the end of the chapter you have this incredible north south east west perspective in God's mind that still becomes the people of Israel and their future, you, you know, so there, there's a trust there that ends up bringing us in the chapter to a personal trust issue with God. And, and I, I'm sure these guys have more to say about that as you go on with your questions. But I, I find that uh, to be a, a large picture perspective of those two chapters. And it, it is crucial to the rest of Genesis because as he deals with each patriarch going from one man to the next, there, there's this overarching theme of God's plan that stands no matter what man decides. John, we are moving very swiftly here, and and I am looking at verse 6, and I do have a question. But before I do that, uh, CL and John, do you have any specific points that you would like to raise that are important for our listeners in those first six verses? Yeah, I, I want to just uh, just talk about you know in the first the first few verses it talks about um, this Abram is coming out of Egypt. First of all, Abram goes to Egypt because the land was barren. The land uh, the, the land had a severe famine, um, and nothing becomes of uh, of of what of their trip in Egypt other than the fact that his wife Sarai uh, almost uh, becomes some uh, the Pharaoh's wife. But Abram becomes enriched with all these possessions. It's going to be something that's going to hinder him or it's going to be an obstacle for him for even after Lot leaves because among those people who are going to be, who are given to him are, are people like Hagar and the riches that come with that. But you also have a Lot who is, uh, who is watching all this. And so where it says like in chapter 13, verse 2, that Abraham was very rich in livestock and silver and gold, and Lot also had uh, livestock in verse 5 and herds and tents. They are both enriched. And Lot has seen how Abram has received all this in Egypt. And it's going to affect him more because that he's going to want to hold on to those things. Whereas Abram sort of is going to be learning, you know, I shouldn't have gone down there. I've been, I endangered my family, uh, my wife especially. And these riches that, uh, that, were, that were given are going to be sort of have the opposite effect of what you would think. So we, what you see here is Abram going back on his journey, going back from Egypt uh, to the Negev, to, the Beth, to Bethel, to where he met with God and worshipped God. He's retracing his steps back, and where it says that the two men are, are enriched with, with flocks and, and herds and tents and, and everything else. He is going back to his place of worship. He's returning back to where he began, to where he had departed, to, to back to the first things of his worship with God. And I think he's, he's learned his lesson or is going to have learned his lesson, whereas Lot didn't go through that. He, he, the Lot, didn't wa- Lot did not watch his wife being taken by Pharaoh and almost married to Pharaoh 
Uh, he, he didn't have to go through that. But Abram has learned a little bit here. But then it gets to verse 6 where it says the land, the land cannot sustain them to bother bothered together. And, and what a difference from chapter, chapter 12 where the land was fam, uh, famished. Now the land can, can't sustain them because they, are so, uh, they, are, they have so much stuff together that they can't uh, dwell together. And this, will be, this begins the, the, the tension that's going to arise, especially uh, with the strife that is mentioned in verse 7. And as John said, let me just give, along with what John and Kevin have said, let me give a larger overview of the framework we're in. First of all, um, we are in a a section that is a bracketed section. Um, In chapter 12, uh, verse number 1, we see this phrase lech lecha in the Hebrew, which is go forth. Uh, In chapter 22, we meet this phrase again, lech lecha, chapter 22, verse number 2, go forth. While it is not yet the end of Abraham's life, what we see is a crescendo, if you will, in these two sections. He's asked something very major here. And and I just want to suggest that when he's asked to go forth, this phraseology is not a repeated phraseology that we will see in the Bible. So this is intense and specific to the life of Abram. Next, it is not only intense and specific, but I want you to hear what Abram heard upon his introduction to God. He hears in the Hebrew, men, men, men. Literally, he hears, go from, go from, go from. Before he's ever promised anything of consequence, he's literally brought out of things that have been consequential to him socially, religiously, relationally, and many other things. And so he hears these demands from God. I want you to understand that when he's in chapter 13 struggling with this, he's already had a great deal pulled away from him by God. This is not just the lore that we read over. Uh, This would be emotionally difficult for him. And frankly, to one extent, I can understand why he would bring Lot with him, uh, because it really is emotionally difficult for him. Uh, But this story is Abram's story. This is bigger than this, God's story. It's not Lot's story. And he's going to have to deal with the inclusion of Lot. Uh, Another thing that I want to mention just by application so that we can bring the philosophical theoretic home to our listeners. Uh, It is important to recognize that the reason why we have chapter 13 with this entire struggle is because he's Abram now. He's not yet Abraham. And I just want to stop and I want to relate this to our listeners and suggest, thank God that he does not abandon us or abrogate us from his promises because we are not yet mature in our faith and able to do with fidelity or faithfulness what he demands of us in the inception of our encounter with him. Faith is a growing from faith to faith, trust to trust, glory to glory. And God is kind and loving and endeared toward us as we go through that experience. Another thing that I think is very interesting, and this will be my point before we go to verse number six, I want you to note very quickly quickly that it is not a problem that God brings that separates the two men. It is the overwhelming blessing of God on the two men that force this separation. And I'm just going to just, just jump in here real quick because I was thinking about this in this, this text and a lot of times the question in, is how do you handle, how do you handle on, uh, on one sense when, when you don't have enough, when you're poor, when you're impoverished, when there's a famine in the land, when, you, when you're famished. But then the other spectrum is how do you handle success? And that's exactly how, you ha- how do you handle the blessing of God? Does it, does it get to your head? Does it get 
uh, or does it uh, cause you to uh, to stumble or cause you to to crave the, the the blessing itself rather than the the blesser, which is God? And there's the the contrast you have here and the difference in character. Both Lot and or both Abram and Lot are growing in faith, though the story is mainly about Abram. We know that Lot is also a person of faith, and we see him as a picture of somebody who's uh, maybe not growing in the same uh, same way that Abram will grow. But that's the tension that you have here, and especially with the two being um, overly blessed by God, that it causes this conflict. So then we get to verse 7. Let me just, um, as you know, gentlemen, I tend to go off at uh, a tangent sometimes, so bear with me. The interesting thing to me before we leave verse 6 is that we are talking about this issue of sustainability. And John, you know from uh, the previous three or four programs that I tend to contextually uh, look at what it's saying in these books and where we are today. There is a connection here with this verse in what we have in our world today with all of us trying to find solutions to sustainability, finding a way to minimize the damage on resources, the movement of people across the world to uh, resources where their intensity uh, lies. Would you say that there is a message in this verse for our listeners could be correlated, could be compared to where we are today that they were going through then in the way that Lot and Abram had to go in different directions because of that uh, limitation that they were faced with? Yeah, I, I would say there's. you can get the, the sense of uh, how to handle the resources that God has provided, you know, how to handle them wisely. And And here's the thing is, Man is no different today than they were back then. We have men that crave, and, and, and there's the idea of greed and wanting more and more and more. And and you have a picture in Abram, you have a picture of somebody who's willing to give that up, somebody who's willing to uh, defer and to give to others. Who uh, you, look at the, you look at the world today with the economies and, and the, the problems the world has, and the same God that's able to provide and bless back then is alive today. But the problem is is that mankind often is, are we don't allow, we don't allow the Lord to um, help us to manage it, so to speak. We sort of uh, are more for it for ourselves and uh, not really caring about uh, about those uh, who are who have less. And so you have this two reactions again. Uh, Lot who is wanting more, you know, he's wanting uh, to to keep that growing and going. And Abram has the mentality, the belief of entrusting. His future to God, and I think with the um, with uh, you, know, you look at the the nations of the world today that you know obviously are uh, are enriched, and those who are, are are poor. There's opportunity for the richer nations to bless the poor and, and to be like Abram in, in in that aspect. So there's, I guess you can you can uh, you can uh, sort of uh, get that from the fact that uh, you know the, of how you handle the resources, how you handle the wealth. And what God wants us to do with that, and uh, and in helping others, that is an interesting question, David. And and actually, in that question, I want to mention something because in this text, in verse number seven, it is not so much while the land becomes a a ground upon which 
the opportunity for character to be seen positive or negatively. I think the main concept is the character more than the land because the two men have clearly seen God's provision. But here's now where we step into a larger hermeneutic that affects that the word that is used there for strife or dispute is the same word that is used for the dispute or strife that's going on in the nation of Israel as God is bringing them out of the uh, land of Egypt into the land of promise. And really, when we have blessing or when we have deficiencies, the concept is we still have that same innate struggle within us that causes us to be at displeasure not with just what God has provided and not just with each other. Yeah, I, I, I think you're, you're getting very practical to some of the social issues of our day and how we look at various countries and what God has provided just in what he's created. I mean, he's given us more than enough resources in the modern day to not only provide for our own countries, but also to provide for others. And in some ways, we've at the expense of other international interests, you know, we tend to squander those resources or not use the resources that we have to the fullest. And so, um, you know, the strife really lies between man's response to the ability to trust God with what's been put in front of them versus trying to manipulate the situation and, and, and make things happen on their own terms. And so when you look at this, you know, Lot continuously, he yeah, he progressively gets into Lot progressively falls into the the fleshly desires of a place like Sodom and Gomorrah. The provisions are all around. Abram is now entering a progression of learning how to trust God and often will make mistakes in the future. And Israel, you know, as God provides for them throughout their wanderings, the same thing happens. And so if, if we make a direct parallel to today's world, we have all that God has ever provided for us, but the way that we're using it and for what reason and the motivation, it, it determines whether or not someone's trusting God or trusting man. It's a beautiful illustration that leads you right into much application, I think. John uh, Cor, I'm going to come uh, back to you in a second, sir, to take us on from verse 8 through to 12. Before I do that, CO, I'd just like to ask you a, que- a question in relation to your comments and also on Kevin's. Is this another way or could this be stated simply in order to gain everything, you have to lose everything? Would that be also a good way to put this? I think what we see, David, and and that's an insightful question because what Jesus states clearly in the Gospels seems to be something that he is shaping in character historically all throughout the biblical narrative. It seems that the more that we try to gain, the more that we lose. The more that we are willing to lose, the more God trusts us with. I think verse 8 is startling because in verse number 8, whereas Lot should have humbled himself and said in offer, if you will, to Abram that he wanted to make peace and he should have said, whatever you choose to do as, as, as the older, who's my uncle, as the patriarch at this point, as the person who God has initially called out, I will surrender to that. What we see is just the opposite. Uh, We see Abram wanting to establish peace. We see Abram wanting to surrender. We see humility very clearly uh, depicted within Abram so that Abram, interestingly enough, he's not letting go of something that he doesn't want. 
I mean, he's just made a several hundred mile journey to get here. I was just going to say he's he's risking the very promise God's given. He says, "Lot, hey, if you want to go left, I'll go right. If you want to go right, I'll go left." Lot could have chosen the promised land that God gave, that God promised to Abram. He is willing to risk that and give that up. See, and the concept we got what we're talking about is. The more you want to hold on to things, the more it will be like, you know, be taken away, so to speak. But the more you let go, God has is able to put more things. So you could distribute that to others and and have that that heart that doesn't look to things, possessions as something to be, to be held on to because God can take those away immediately. It is the, having that heart that is open to allow God to place whatever He wants to place in your life and allow Him to take it out, which is interesting because Abram's going to have to give up. A few things later on in his life. He's going to have to give up Ishmael in chapter 17, and he's going to have to give up Isaac later on as well. And Abram, is being, as a man of faith, is being trained of, of not to hold on to those things that really God can replace instantaneously, but to allow his heart to be molded by God. Yeah. May I just return back to you, CL, and Kevin, you may want to comment, or perhaps CL, you may want to refer this question or this point to Kevin, perhaps. You talk, CL, about humility. You use that word. Could we equally, for Abram's position, use the word compassion in the terms of the relationship that he has with Lot in that Abram realizes the responsibility in that compassion to forgive Lot for any possible feelings of abandonment or regret or disloyalty. Is that what Abraham is charged to do here, to provide complete compassion to Lot? David, I, I think that this, Kevin, I, I think that that is definitely present, but the ability to do that is based upon the promise in chapter 12 and elsewhere throughout the theme of the book. Abram, though he is not fully developed in character and learning to trust along the way, he's, he's going to have many attempts at this. But the promise itself, and, and I think that's where the New Testament comes into the whole plan, the promises that God has made, I will give this land, I will bless you, I will, all these statements, it is foundational, and this is where it becomes practical for listeners, it's foundational to our ability to humble ourselves and trust the situation that what God has said will be, even though man is involved in character deficiencies that often try to hinder that process. And so that is huge, valuable. I think, um, in the midst of the tension because we're able to get through those types of tensions, however they may happen in the modern-day church and with our own country even in social issues that we are faced with currently. Those promises that God has given in his word uh, for the nation of Israel and then ultimately for the body of Christ, it brings people to the ability to stand down, if you will, and um, have compassion for one who may not be further along in their trust with the Lord and trying to gain everything uh, rather than losing it so that they gain their soul is is where that's going with. But that, I think that's very valuable and practical for people. I, I would just say, David, to to tag on to that in, in brevity, that what we see is, and, and the reason why I mentioned a canonical or a larger biblical hermeneutic here is because while it is true that he has a compassion, And while it is true, as Kevin said, that he is holding on to those promises, those promises that he's holding on to, says the author of Hebrews, who's presenting in sermonic form truths, 
He says that Abraham is looking for something that's bigger than topography and geography here. That he's not looking for the temporal limitations that can be taken away, uh, as it were. His, his trust, his focus uh, is on uh, God and what God has to offer. And, and I would say this, at the end of the day, we hold what we hold in this earth in trust. But we hold it loosely. But if the believers of this world are holding on to temporal manifestations of a promise greater than they are to the anticipation of promises that cannot be rusted, cannot be stolen, cannot be eaten away, uh, they don't really understand the spirit of this text. Because there's something greater that we look forward to that is not encapsulated in the property that can be either foreclosed or paid for. It's a promise that is fixated within the precious truths given to us through Jesus Christ. Yeah. Let me move. Let me move on to you, John Cor. Please, could you give us a, an overview of eight to twelve for our listeners? Sure. And and you have beginning in, in verse eight, where Abram steps up and he says, "Listen, I don't want to have any strife between us and our men." Uh, he is first of all, Abram is is the bigger man in this in this picture here. And he says, listen, if you want the, the whole answer before us, you can go one way, I'll go the other way. You, you choose first. Now, this is Abram, the, the patriarch, or, or the uncle Abram to, to Lot, the, uh, giving Lot the first choice. And Lot looks up, and he looks around, and he sees the valley of the Jordan. Of course, he, he looks, and he realizes, oh, I've, got all, I've got all these livestock to feed, and boy, it's really green and well watered down there. And it's interesting that the verse in verse 10 says, that it was well watered, and this was before the Lord destroy, destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. He doesn't know, realize what's going to happen to Sodom and Gomorrah. But then it says it's like the garden of the Lord, hinting back to the Garden of Eden, chapter uh, chapter 3. It's the enticement that's there. It's it's the uh, uh, the lushness that's there that's appealing to his, his eyes, to his flesh. And so it says he chose for himself uh, that valley, and then they separated. And it was... Uh, it was, and then it comments that he moved his fen- tents as far away as to towards Sodom, and we know where this is going. This is setting up for uh, the uh, chapter um, uh, eighteen with Sodom and Gomorrah being destroyed, and, and Abram having to rescue Lot again. Uh, but you see here uh, in this really the the characters being brought out, and Abram being uh, a man of peace, a man who does not want to have strife, allowing Lot to to choose. And uh, we see a lot about his character here. And, of course, the character of Lot that's, that's being shown here as well. Uh, and, of course, the result is going to be is God's going to reward Abram anyway for his choice of trusting God, of, of his willingness to give up that which is well-watered and green and, and, uh, and apparently well-provided for uh, his livestock. He's going to provide him with even greater things. And so that's sort of the overview of that section. Kevin Cox, are there any particular details in those verses 8 to 12 that you would like to focus on for our listeners? Uh, the, the comment in verse 13, before, or, well, you're in 12. So the one, one man settled here, the other settled there. I think the verse that comes up in the lust of all the, the green valley of the Jordan that comes up in my mind is the New Testament verse that speaks of the, the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. Lot had what was temporal in mind 
and he looked at it and reacted to it. And then what you end up with at the end of the chapter is this, the area of Sodom was wicked and exceedingly sinful. I think it's just laying out for us, one man is taking after that which he sees with his eyes as a benefit to himself, perhaps, or to uh, what is temporal versus Abraham waiting to see where he's going. And, you know, again, I, I come back so strongly to a trust in God because we are faced with that all of the time. You know, are we going to push life ahead and try to get for ourselves what we think is the benefit of what our eyes or our flesh may be seeing, thinking, and even sometimes sanctify in a sanctification sort of way, we try to say that that's God's will for us uh, because we think it's the good thing uh, versus waiting and trusting that God's plan will endure and allowing people to make their decisions and then go the way that may seem to be a hindrance, but yet, in fact, God's blessing is still there. It requires an enormous amount of faith at that point to let go of what we might think would be the ideal situation and, and trust that God really is going to give it to us anyway. Uh, in terms of his best. But visually, you just may not be in front of us at that moment. Let me turn to you, C.L. Mitchell, uh, for the same uh, thoughts uh, on those verses. But C.L., just so you know, I did stop at 12 because of 13, and you know the way my mind works in, in narrative. Because I always wondered with this chapter why they placed verse 13 there of all places that seems to be very insulated and highlighted from the verses prior to it and more so after it. Absolutely, David. We, we will get to verse number 13, I think, because that is critical and that verse is not to be avoided. Let me just point out a couple of things that I think John and Kevin pointed out. And let me just suggest that when the text says that Lot lifted up his eyes and saw this is a direct allusion back to Genesis 3-6. And then, interestingly enough, there is an allusion forward to the Israelites. The, the message is, don't settle for what your eyes had seen in Egypt. Instead, they are to proceed to what they have not yet seen by faith. Mm-hmm. I, I, I want to make sure that we, we, we grasp this because, as Dr. Ravi Zacharias says, we must see this world through our eyes not with our eye. Because if we're simply looking with our eyes, we're going to stumble because we're not going to inform it with the truths of God. Um, uh, So when he says that, there's not a positive thing that's being said here. He's not simply trying to say that. And what is inherent that Moses is trying to include for them is, be careful what your eyes have seen. Because you haven't yet seen the land, but what you're working with is what you have seen. And you're going to stumble because God knows more than you know. That's bringing up a very good point because in, in the history of Israel, you have... Obviously, their struggle with wanting, well, in the wandering in, in uh, the wilderness for 40 years, wanting to go back to Egypt to the things that they will sort of remember fondly, the, the food, but they don't remember the chains of the slavery very well. Uh, that The idea of, of uh, the temptation to, to uh, equate what you see with, with the quality of what you're going to get uh, or, or the opposite. You see in the book of Numbers where it is because they are fearful of what they see, i.e. the, the giants in the land and the, and, the, the, and the fortified cities, that causes them to not trust God and to, to, to turn back. And you see here the, the setup here with, with verse, uh, coming up with verse 13, the setup being 
that uh, if Lot is, 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 is he's using his sight right now to make decisions and he's going through that which is going to appeal to his flesh, he, it's setting up for the, the point that it is leading him closer and closer to wicked ways and wicked ways of thinking. And what I think is interesting in this chapter is that the temptation, I call this a temptation the, that, that Lot is facing, is very, very similar to what Jesus experienced while he was being tempted by the devil. The devil instantly shows him the kingdoms of the world uh, in, in Luke chapter 4 and, uh, and says, listen, I'll, I can give you all this right now. That's the same kind of, of temptation that Lot is sort of uh, is looking at. He can have the green pastures right now. Why have why why struggle in the land of of the hills and the valleys and and of of famine? We don't know if it's going to rain. When I can have the fertile and the green stuff right now, why wait? And the principle here is, of course, that of of trusting God. That God rewards those who wait on Him and trust on Him. And though the 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 the, the lushness of of the valley. Uh, appeals to to the flesh, uh, the the traps, the hooks are sort of hidden within the bait, and he does not realize it at this time. Which is why, as you were saying, David, when he now refers to the garden of the Lord, there is a deliberate allusion back to Genesis chapter 2, verses 8 through 14. But then note very carefully, when he says the land of Egypt, there is a contrast, but also there is not just an allusion now forward there is an illusion that is being presented. So he's saying it's looking like this, but it's really like this. Moses is very subtle in what he's drawing as a picture for the people. This needs to be noticed so heavily because what Abram has offered Lot is a part and parcel in the promised land. And listen, it did not look attractive to Lot. Right. It, it did not appease his eyes. And I just want to stop here and now rush to the New Testament and rush into our day and time and say, David, I want to be honest and I want to say there are some things within the framework of Christianity that are not attractive to the eye. That's right. Mm-hmm. There, there are some sufferings when we decide to take certain precious promises now and we're looking at delayed gratification in a world that's given over to immediate gratification. Let me just tell you, Christians are not stupid. They are not imbecilic. They are not morons. We need to eat like everyone else. We want to live. We want to drive cars. We want to live in homes. We want to do things of that nature. And when you sit there and say, take an eternal truth over and above an immediate gratification, take an eternal truth, wait to be with your wife sexually, in the framework of blessed, blissful marriage versus compromising someone sexually, listen, there's not that immediate gratification and there's some suffering involved in that. Mm-hmm. And I think what we're looking at is a picture. But but let me just, just hound on this before we get to verse number 13, the, the people of the ear. What lay at root for the Israeli community is Deuteronomy 6.4, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. It starts off with this word Shema. I want you to know how did Abram come into acquaintance with this land? Here's the key. He heard about it. What did Lot come into acquaintance with Sodom and Gomorrah through? He saw it. Mm-hmm. The concept is he was driven by sight. He was senses driven. He saw the world with his eyes, but Abram was driven by insight, by foresight. And as a result, he was able to move away from these traps and trips and tricks that the adversary had laid in his area. So so basically what I'm arguing, uh, David, and what I think we're all arguing is 
Abraham by ear took something that did not immediately look as plush as what Lot took. But here's the key. Lot's land was destroyed to the point where we struggle to find it today and no vegetation grows. Abram's land was plush, but the promises of God realized in the new Jerusalem are even more plush. We always must go with what we're hearing from God in a society that is given over to what they're seeing with their eyes. John Kaur, in our last six minutes of the program, would you like to start us off from verse 13 through to the final verse, verse 18? Sure, and of course, and we've been talking in chapter in, in, in verse 13, the allusion to the men of, of, of Sodom being wicked, and of course, the setup of, of what we know it's going to happen with Lot, he's going to end up going there, and the influences that are going to be there, he is going to end up moving there, and though he's going to be a man of faith, he's not going to be able to influence those men very well but he's going, he's, because he's going to be living a very compromised life, wanting to be like them, wanting to get ever so near to them. It's not going to work out. But in, in, in uh, verse 14, it's, it's interesting, the contrast or the similarities between uh, where he looks up, uh, 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 where uh, Lot had looked at the land. Now God says to Abram, now you look at the land. And everywhere you look at, I'm giving you. Because you have uh, delayed gratification, so to speak, now I'm going to bless, bring this blessing on even more. And he says, all the, san- the land that, uh, that you see, I will give it to you to you and your descendants forever. And what's going to happen from, chapter, uh, from this chapter uh, to about chapter uh, 6, 15 or so, the issue is going to be about the land, the land that's gi- that is given to Abram's descendants uh, as a possession forever, that is not stipulated really on on Abram's uh, following the, the law of, of Moses, but rather just his f- stepping out in faith and following God. And then he says, I'm going to make your descendants like the dust of the earth, and everywhere you go is going to be given to you land, unto you. And right now, Abram is still Abram. He has no children. He is an old man. His wife is barren. She is old. And God is giving all these promises and what he's hearing, he still also has to make a choice to believe as well. And, of course, Abram still moves. All he has to go on right now is what God has told him. All he has to go on it was what God has promised, yet he is moving on, carrying on in faith uh, towards that, not knowing how God's going to fulfill his promises. And that's the whole point. The whole point of, the, of really the story of Abram is God bringing that which is impossible to, to the possibility, that which cannot be done is going to be done through God, and that is the brilliance of God in this in the story. C.O. Mitchell, could I turn to you, sir, to give us your review of these final verses? These verses are extremely complex, and they not only cha- challenge the historical society uh, to whom they were wit- written, and they not only challenge the historical society in which they occurred, more than making comments on these verses, Uh, I fear that what I must do is somewhat prophetic in that I have to say this in today's society measures the commitment of a preacher, uh, the commitment of a theologue to the word of God versus the mandates of society. I think these verses need not be taught grievously, need not be taught in a horrendous way that involves our own prejudice, but they certainly must be allowed to speak for what they say. And the wickedness of Sodom um, uh, is not just this wickedness, if you will, that is a wickedness of inhospitality. Mm -hmm. 
um, this inhospitality, if you will, if we were to borrow New Testament thinking concerning this Greek word, a lover of strangers and a refusal to care for them and pride and things of that nature. Um, this is an inhospitableness that exchanges the natural way in which God has created man for woman and woman for man and created the sexes, male and female, for their interaction. I, I, I want to make sure that I just go on record, and as we have been faithful to the text hitherto, that we continue to say that while God is not um, um, uh, suggesting that he does not love the sinner, because that's not what's being propagated here, he is clear with us and loving enough for us to, and to us to tell us what the offense is. Uh, and the offense is going to result in a destruction of the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah. And listen very carefully. This then, what most scholars don't do is they don't contextualize this because they are not only destroyed, but the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, on and on, the Amorites, they did not have this sin, but they had equivocal sins that resulted in their sins literally rising to the nostrils of God so that they were destroyed. So God is not lifting this sin up and over other sins, but he is also not ignoring this as a sin mm -hmm. at the same time. And I think that needs to be mentioned, David. And I will just move in there very uh, quickly. We only have two minutes left. Uh, thank you, CO, for referring there. So, Kevin, I think uh, as well as responding to that in the very short time we have left, uh, just your conclusion to this chapter as our special guest today. Well, these guys have, have well stated the last few verses. The The phrase that, that I my heart tends to turn toward is in verse 14 at the beginning, and I, I was trying to chomp at the bit to say this earlier and got ahead of 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 the whole process but after lot had separated from him that's when the lord speaks to abraham and says okay now lift up your eyes and he reiterates it's what we call an inclusion an inclusio a bookend if you will of what's already been stated in previous chapters you know in god's covenant toward uh his people and abram being at the forefront of this he reiterates I will statements that that brings him to a conclusion at the end of the chapter of I'm going to extend your number beyond the dust of the earth and I will give this land its length, its breadth, north, east, south, you know, west, in, including all that Lot uh, looked to. You know, it is all inclusive. And it's that phrase after Lot had separated from him, it's as though – God allows the course of man's decisions, and yet he states throughout scriptures that his plan will still supersede anything that develops. And I think that is a powerful statement to the body of Christ, to the church, uh, due to our tendency and response to things that we see versus sometimes our deficiencies of trusting God. And unfortunately, that brings us to the end of today's program, gentlemen. For this uh, chapter 13, I'd like to thank you, C.O. Mitchell, John Corr, and our special guest, Kevin Cox, today. Thank, thank, you. thank you. Thank you. We, for our listeners, will be uh, returning back to chapter 13 in our next program uh, to just go back over the last four or five verses, which I think we will need to spend more time on. Following that, we will be going to chapter 14 and, of course, you can gain information on any program in the series at davidgibbons.org. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, God bless you. Good morning.
good afternoon and good evening. David Gibbons in discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors. In Discussion with David Gibbons is sponsored in part by Bowman Global Change. Specializing in helping companies reduce their carbon emissions, Bowman Global Change applies real science to real business practices to produce results. From designing green programs to one-on-one training to helping set up green action teams in your business, Bowman Global Change translates complex science in practical ways that everyone can understand and use. For more information or to discover how Bowman Global Change can help your organization, visit bowmanglobalchange.com.